Well, you can keep your Bibles open there at Revelation 11, verses 15 to 19. As we think this evening about the seventh trumpet, which shows us that the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes. Well, I have it on good authority from the teacher of our Sabbath morning Bible class that Charles Spurgeon once said the following. There are only two days that matter, today and that day. And by that day, he was referring, of course, to the day that we read of in Revelation chapter 11 just a moment ago, the day of the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And our brother Spurgeon was, of course, correct. We should be living today with that day, the last day in mind. (coughs) What will happen on the last day should govern our lives, how we live here and now. If a young couple have set a date for a wedding, there are certain things that they might do today that they would not do if that, if that day was still was not coming. A photographer might be booked, a dress shopping might be planned, perhaps if they're really keen, a gym membership or a diet plan might begin. Activities that most of the rest of us would have no interest in or desire for, but the young couple are doing these things today because the wedding day is coming. The last day, likewise, friends, is coming. The day when Jesus Christ returns. The day of resurrection and of judgment. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 24, 43, that he will return like a thief in the night and at an hour that you do not expect. And whether we are Christians or not today, We need to be living today with the last day in mind. Revelation is going to keep bringing us to the last day, to judgment day. We've already visited it once briefly in chapter 8 verses 1 to 5 when the cycle of the seven seals came to an end. And we arrive at it again now as we come to the end of the seven trumpets. And we'll come to it again later in the book. And the repetition of this and and the revisiting again and again of Judgment Day is to emphasize to us the certainty that Judgment Day is coming. It's a bit like if you remember the story of, of Pharaoh in the days of Joseph having his dreams of the seven fat cows followed by the seven skinny cows and the seven good ears of corn followed by the seven bad ears of corn. And Joseph told him, your two dreams are confirming the one truth that there will be seven good years of of crops and harvest and then seven lean years of famine. Two dreams emphasizing the one truth. And Revelation, in a similar way, gives us these cycles of visions over and over again to emphasize the same truths. And each each time that we come to Judgment Day in Revelation... Different aspects of Judgment Day are emphasized to us. And here in Revelation, uh, in Revelation chapter 11 rather, the focus of the description of the last day is very much on the experience of believers. There is some mention, as we'll see, of (coughs) the fate of unbelievers. And there'll be more of that later in the book. But what we're seeing this evening in Revelation chapter 11, friends, primarily, is that the last day... The day of judgment will be a great day for Christ's people. 
It's a day to look forward to for Christ's people. It's a day that Jesus has told us to pray for. Your kingdom come, we're told to pray. On that last day, Jesus' kingdom will come. And for those who belong to that kingdom, it will be a great day. And so three things to consider together from the end of Revelation 11 this evening. Uh, Three things about this last day. First of all, it will be a day of glorious confirmation. A day of glorious confirmation. If you look at verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. (coughs) And he shall reign forever and ever. Don't know if any of you are fans of Handel's Messiah. Uh, Maybe some of you have heard a performance of it. And you'll recognize the inspiration for the great climax of that music. The words there, he shall reign forever and ever. And this at last, friends, on the last day, will be the global recognition that King Jesus reigns, that the kingdom of God has defeated the kingdom of Satan, that Jesus Christ is undisputably King of kings and Lord of lords. And of course, Jesus Christ already is King of kings and Lord of lords. We thought about that when we looked at Psalm 110 a few weeks ago. But not everyone in the world right now recognises that, at least not yet. And the reason that people refuse to recognise that is because a war continues between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this this world. There There is a tussle going on, there is a conflict going on between the kingdom of this world trying to lay claim to this world for itself and the kingdom of God. Right now in the war between Ukraine and Russia, that territory has been changing hands. It's been changing hands quite a bit these last few weeks as the Ukrainians make big gains. But throughout this war, as in any war, one side makes a gain and they perhaps gain control of a particular area. And so they're in control of the power supplies and the food supplies and maybe the airport if there is one. But as long as the war continues... There will be some people in those areas who do not accept the rule of their enemy. Who continue to say this is Ukrainian territory or this is Russian territory. It's only when the conflict ends, when there is a decisive victor. That everyone must recognize who is really in charge. And that's what we're waiting for as Christians. And that's what the last day will bring confirmation that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and of the nations. Or to give you a slightly different illustration, King Charles III is now our king. But his coronation, his day when he is officially publicly recognized and uh, <coughs> and uh, the orb and the scepter and the crown jewels are placed upon him, that day hasn't come yet. As far as I know, it's planned for June 2023. Uh, And just as King Charles at his coronation will hold in his hand an orb that symbolizes the the sphere of his rule. uh, Jesus Christ, friends, on that last day, he will finally be seen and recognized and confessed 
as the king who holds all the nations in his hands. That's what these loud voices in heaven declare for the whole world to hear. Verse 15, our king reigns. And notice particularly how it's described, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. What does it mean there, the kingdom of the world? Well, it's talking about the power and influence that Satan has upon this world. We thought about this a few weeks ago in Revelation chapter 9 as we consider the reality of evil on the earth, Satan and demons. And notice, friends, the perspective that verse 15 gives us. It says there, the kingdom of this world, singular. Uh, the, K- the King James, maybe other translations as well, have it in the plural, kingdoms, but it, it's singular in the Greek, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. Uh, and that emphasizes to us that whether, whatever shape or form it takes in our world, whether it's right-wing dictatorships like Putin in Russia, whether it's the, the corrupt communists in China, or whether it's the, the liberal, self-indulgent, perverted culture of the West, it's all part of one kingdom, Satan's kingdom, his area of influence, his domain. In Ephesians 2 verse 2, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, friends, everywhere in our world that the kingship of Christ is not gladly confessed and proclaimed. That is the kingdom of Satan at work. It's contested territory, spiritually speaking. Where people are not yet willing to acknowledge the truth of the kingship of Christ. We see this so clearly, don't we? In our day-to-day lives, Revelation here is giving us a a way to understand the very streets that we walk up and down on. As we see Satan's influence and sway and his temptations and seductions ruining lives, bringing darkness and sin and suffering. I was in Belfast briefly this past week. Our presbytery was visiting one of our congregations in the city centre and in the space of just a few minutes, having parked on the street and walked uh, to the church building, you could feel a palpable atmosphere, an uneasiness, a, a tension as people hurried around about you. And, and having sensed a, a little bit of that and, and maybe, for, maybe forgotten it or put it to the back of my mind, it was interesting that during the meeting of Presbytery, the minister of that congregation spoke of the spiritual wasteland that Belfast City Centre has become. Not because there are no churches preaching the gospel. Thankfully, there are still some. But in terms of what is going on in the streets and houses around those churches. A couple of years ago, a man went on a stabbing spree around Belfast City Centre, attacking several women. And one of the attacks took, took place just a little bit further up the street from our congregation's church building there on the same night that their ladies were meeting for a Bible study. There's human trafficking and and drug dealing within yards of this church. The pastor spoke of groups of men just wandering around, exuding a sense of unease. Now the congregation has has been in that city centre for decades, but they said that 
the spiritual atmosphere has become noticeably darker in recent years. It's the kingdom of the world, friends, delving deeper and deeper into perversion and depravity and darkness, resisting the kingdom of God. We're living in contested territory. But on the last day, it will be contested territory no longer because the king will come. And in an instant, in an instant, he will execute his judgment and this spiritual wasteland will become our new glorious homeland. This world will finally rightly be recognized as the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. What a prospect. What a wonderful moment that will be. You see, once again, Revelation is giving us a perspective to live by. That is the purpose of the book. It was the purpose for those who first read it in first century Rome with all the the, the very similar type of darkness and, uh, and sinful spirituality that we see in our world today. Revelation was telling God's people then, it's telling us today, live today with the last day in mind. Do not be discouraged by the trials or the darkness that we face. Remember, the King is coming soon. Are you looking forward to that, dear Christian? Does it excite you? Is this your purpose for living? Is this what gets you out of bed in the morning? That you're part of a kingdom and you belong to a king who will reign forever and ever. Or do these things just get a little more than a snort from you? If you believe it at all, you dread it or you'd rather not think about it. Well, if that's the case, I have to ask you this evening, whose side are you on? Are you living for the kingdom of this world with all its trivialities and passing pleasures and idols and interests? Or are you living for the kingdom to come and the king who will reign forever and ever? A day of glorious confirmation. Secondly, it will be a day of glad and thankful worship. A day of glad and thankful worship. Look at verse 16. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. We've seen the 24 elders before. Uh, If you remember back in Revelation chapter 4, the the vision of heaven's throne room, the 24 elders seated around God's throne. Uh, We read of them again earlier in uh, chapter 7. And most likely the 24 elders, they, they represent the church from all times and ages. The 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles, the leaders of the church in the New Testament. And this great announcement of Christ's reign and kingdom is made. And what is the response, the immediate response of these elders? It's worship. Look at verse 17. Uh, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. It's interesting there, back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, Jesus was described as the one who is and who was and who is to come. 
Uh, But now, as the seventh trumpet blasts and the day of judgment comes, he is the one who is and who was and who has begun to reign because he has come. He has overwhelmed and destroyed his foes forever. Look at verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, And those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is all worship. This is all praise that the 24 elders offer to the king. And broadly speaking, this is a bit of a broad brush, but just notice two main reasons for their praise here. First of all, they offer praise for God's righteous judgment of sinners. They praise God for his righteous judgment of sinners. The nations raged, verse 18. Clear reference there, of course, to Psalm 2, which we sang earlier. Why do the nations rage? The psalmist asks. God is righteous and holy and good. The nations only take their next breath because God allows it. Yet they rage against him. They, They hate him. They resist and resent his rule. And that being the case, friends, on the last day, God's wrath will be poured out upon them. They raged at him. Well, in a holy and perfect sense, his rage will now fall on them. The punishment will fit the crime. His patience will come to an end. But the point is, friends, I want you to notice God is worshipped for this. He is worshipped for his judgment of sinners. The elders come back to it in the last line of verse 18. (coughs) They say the time has come, they say, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That might be a reference back to uh, Satan and demons. Uh, They were described described as being very destructive in chapter 9. But along with the uh, destruction of Satan and demons is, is judgment of sinners. We need to handle this with humility and reverence. But what we see here is that on the, on the last day, God will be worshipped by all his people in no small part because of the righteous judgment that he will pour out upon our enemies. We will see Satan and all other destroyers themselves destroyed. And the church will see these things, friends, and be satisfied, vindicated, And we will give glory to God. And we should not shy away or make apology for wanting the justice of God to come to this world. I've said it before. This has been a theme of our studies in Revelation. We saw it as well in Jude in the summer. This is what we pray for when we pray your kingdom come. We are are praying for God's righteous judgment to be done. And it's something that Christians tend not to think about. Or if we do, we perhaps are tempted to downplay it. Because we don't want to be seen as sounding harsh or judgmental. There's that caricature of the fire and brimstone Ulster preacher. Telling people they're going to hell. And and he doesn't sound very sorry about it. And of course, when we speak about judgment to come. It must be with obvious concern and compassion for those around us. Who are standing in the way of that judgment. But friends, nonetheless, on the last day, we will rightly and reverently praise God 
for his righteous judgment of sinners and of Satan and demons with them. There will be no more unsolved murders. There will be no more missing purses cases. There will be no more infanticide in the name of women's health care. There will be no more parades of perversion. There will be no more warmongering from Putin or power grabbing from politicians. The nations will stop their raging as soon as the king begins his judging. The nations will stop their raging as soon as King Jesus begins his judging. And the church will rejoice that at last those who rejected Christ, hated Christ, persecuted Christ and his church with him are receiving the penalty that their sins deserve. Praise for his righteous judgments, but also we see here that praise is offered to God for vindicating and rewarding the saints. Praise is offered to God for rewarding the saints. Notice the middle of verse 18. The time came for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both, both great and small. Notice all those descriptions of Christians there, friends. Servants, prophets, saints, those who fear your name, both great and small. I like the last one, great and small. That's what one of the Psalms that we sang earlier mentioned as well. On the last day, friends, it won't matter whether you were a preacher who preached to stadiums of thousands or whether you were the quietest, most overlooked member in the most overlooked church in the world. If we have been faithful to Christ, then when he returns... He will reward all his people. And the Bible talks, the New Testament talks not only about the reward of eternal life, which of course will, all of us will have, but it talks also about rewards based on the things that we have done in service of Christ. And we wouldn't dare even think of that if the, if the Bible didn't teach it to us, that we would be rewarded simply for doing our duty. But listen, for example, to Paul's words in Romans 2 verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So this is the praise, friends, that we will offer on the great day of Christ's return. Praise for his righteous judgment. And praise also for his gracious rewards of his people. And the question, of course, is, will you be among those singing these praises and enjoying these rewards? It's hard for us to take it in, isn't it, dear Christian, that we will see Jesus? That we will be able to finally thank him in person, praise him in person, resurrected, Glorious, free of sin. Our our natural desire will be to praise him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Is that your desire even in some measure at least here and now? We were thinking about the fourth commandment this morning. And how we are to, to remember this day and keep it holy. Not least by our worship. And one of the reasons we keep this day holy, friends, is because it gives us a glimpse of the last day. 
When Christ's people are together, worshipping, glad and thankful for his kingdom. And dear Christian, be assured this evening, if you have spoken at all for Christ and his gospel, if you have kept faith in his sovereignty amid your sorrows, if you have been part of a great church, an impressive church, or just a, a, a small, ignored little church, if you have borne the scorn and hatred and mockery of unbelievers around you, be sure of this. The last day will be a rewarding day. It will make all the hard days more than worth it. And you will praise your king more wholeheartedly than ever you have before for all his blessings to you. A day of glorious confirmation, a day of glad and thankful worship, and thirdly and finally, a day to be dreaded for God's enemies. A day to be dreaded for God's enemies. Look at verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. We thought last week about the whole matter of the temple that John was told to measure. And I explained that any mention of the temple in Revelation or in other parts of the New Testament is usually a picture of God with his church. And if we carry that interpretation on here, you might ask, well, what is the significance then of the Ark of the Covenant appearing in the temple? Well, of course, the word Ark really means a box or an enclosure. And and the original Ark of the Covenant, we, we read about it earlier, the, the construction of it and the purpose of it. Uh, and inside that great and glorious looking ark would have been placed the, the Ten Commandments. That's what was meant when we read earlier in Exodus of the testimony being placed inside it. Uh, so a jar of manna was also placed inside it, as was the staff, the wooden staff of Aaron that budded. But what the ark was all about in the Old Testament era was the presence of God with his people. That wherever God's people went, God was going with them, whether to the battlefield or in their journeys to the promised land, or eventually when they settled there in Jerusalem in the temple. But of course, once the ark was in the temple in Jerusalem in Solomon's day, and even before that in the tabernacle and in the days of Moses, hardly anybody ever saw it, except the high priest once a year on the day of atonement. The ark disappeared when Jerusalem was invaded and overthrown by the Babylonians, it was never seen again, and despite the, the, uh, uh, the message of the Indiana Jones movies, I don't believe it ever will be seen again. So why is it appearing here in Revelation? Well, friends, it's a picture of Jesus Christ with his church. If the temple is the church, the one at the heart of the church, the one who gives the church its purpose and hope, is the true and better ark. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God with us. One of his names, Emmanuel, that's what it means. God with us. And, and just, I want to be absolutely clear about this. Because you might think, well, you know, you see, the, you see the Ark of the Covenant appear in Revelation. How do we know that we're to understand that to be a picture of Jesus? Well, well friends, that's the type of book Revelation is. It gives us these pictures And based on everything else that we have in the Bible, we make what we hope are sound interpretations of what these pictures mean. And think about it logically. Why would we see a golden box on the Day of Judgment? Uh, The time of the Ark of the Covenant has passed. 
What it symbolised and pointed forward to is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We don't need a golden box anymore. We have Jesus. And that's why we believe here that uh, what John saw is a symbol of what we will experience. That's why I read earlier from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 describes the same thing that, we're, that is described here in Revelation. It's just that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is a letter written by Paul. And so he doesn't use pictures. He just says, the Lord will descend with a cry of command from heaven. Revelation is a picture book. And so it uses a picture to emphasize the same thing. That on the last day, Jesus Christ will be with his church. And Jesus Christ and his church with him will be radiant and glorious. The words of the old hymn writer are worth remembering. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. That's what John sees as God here in the vision, as it were, throws open the temple doors. And he sees what for him would have meant, would have been symbolism and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. On the last day, Christ will be with his people. They will be together forever. That is such wonderful good news if you're a Christian this evening. But then comes the warning for you today if you're not ready for the last day. Verse 19. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. We should be getting used to seeing those things appearing together in Revelation. Every time they do, it means the same thing. God's judgment is near. God's judgment is here. And I challenge you again this evening to consider how dreadful that moment will be for you unless you have repented of your sins. You will see everything that believers will see on the last day if you're not a Christian. You'll see Christ in his fierce glory. You'll see the kingdom of this world finally destroyed and made new as the kingdom of God. You'll realize in an instant the warnings I got were true. The men who preached to me, the Christian neighbors and family members who spoke to me were right. I had every opportunity to be ready for this day. But it will be too late. There won't be vindication for you. There won't be rejoicing and thankfulness. There will be bitterness and regret and terror and pain forever. That's why the only two days that truly matter are today and that day. Get ready today for the last day. Live your life now in such a way that you're ready for what will happen then. I remember growing up before we all had mobile phones and if you were on your way to someone's house, you would just text, be there in five minutes. Before that, every so often your mum or dad would say, so-and-so is coming to our house today. 
And that was why you couldn't sit on the sofa once it had been hoovered. Or you couldn't bring food onto particular floors. There was this rush of activity around the house and you had to be ready. And your mum and dad seemed a little bit on edge compared to the usual. Because in the days before text messages, these people could appear at any moment. Jesus has sent us, friends, the only message that we need. I am coming soon. Don't scoff at it. Don't ignore it. Don't make light of it. It will be instant and it will be awful. If you're outside of the kingdom of God, sheep and goats, saints and sinners, rewarded and punished, that will be it. And if you are not ready, it will be earthquake, hail and fire for you. And it will be the eternal, bitter realisation I could have had heaven, but I chose hell. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, because the last day is coming soon. Amen.